0: Welcome to a special edition of the Darden admissions podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share a recording from a recent installment in our ongoing faculty spotlight series, a series we call Office Hours, featuring Yojud Cheng. yo is a member of the Strategy, Ethics, and Entrepreneurship faculty here at the Darden School of Business. And in this conversation, we talk with her about her background, what led her to Darden, her interest in corporate governance, some of her recent Darden ideas to action articles, and so much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my interview with yo Chang. yo I will tell you, it was a lot of fun coming up with the questions and talking with you earlier this week because this felt like a very kind of like rip from the headlines session. We're going to talk about a lot of a lot of companies that have been in the news uh, a lot over the past couple of years. So thank you for joining.
1: Of course. Yeah, happy to be here.
0: All right. Well, um, first of all, I would just like to begin by saying um, real quickly uh, to acknowledge all the, all the nice messages we have received from prospective students and and from people who are um, yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of keeping up with what's been going on in Charlottesville this week. Obviously, this has been a challenging week for the university, but I wanted to thank everybody for the outpouring of support and all the nice messages that we have gotten. And I, I wanted to thank you also for being here today and joining, joining for the webinar. So um, uh, thank you. Thank you all. And so, uh, Yojad, as we as we get started here, um, I always find it nice just to hear a little bit more about about your story and, and and ultimately your your background. So, share a little little bit more with our with our attendees today about your story.
1: Yeah. So, thank you, Brett, so much for for having me here. I um, said so my name is Yojad. I'm a strategy professor here at Darton. Um, I was born in New York, and my family kind of lived in a couple of places around the northeast of the US uh, before we moved to Taiwan when I was seven, which is where my parents are originally from. It's where they still live now. Um, and I was there until the end of high school before coming back to the US for college. Um, where I went to Wellesley College, which is a women's college outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I studied economics there and then moved to the Bay Area for a few years um, where I worked in economic consulting before I went to get my uh, doctorate in strategy at HBS. And then that brought me here to Darden. So I've been here since since I graduated in 2019 from, from my PhD program. How
0: did you decide to pursue a doctorate in strategy?
1: Yeah, so kind of interesting. I mean, I went to um a liberal arts college and so, you know, I studied economics. There was no business major, you know, business PhD programs really just weren't on my radar at all. I didn't even know that they existed. Um but I knew that when I graduated from undergrad, I was I was interested in in sort of potentially going down the PhD route. Um but when I started looking into economics PhD programs, I realized, you know, I was looking for something maybe a little bit more interdisciplinary. And it was actually one of my coworkers that suggested looking into business, t- business PhD programs. And uh, with strategy, what I really liked was that a lot of my coursework that I would be taking would be in economics, and I'd kind of have that disciplinary grounding. Um, but a lot of the research questions um, that people focus on in the strategy field were much more applied and much more um, interdisciplinary. And that was something that was just like once I once I realized it existed, I'm like, oh, this is exactly what I was looking for. Um, and so I sort of started my research process um, there about the range of different programs and and sort of the rest is history. I'd say.
0: Well, you mentioned you've been at Darden since 2019. So how did you how did you decide Darden was the place for you?
1: Yeah. So this is my fourth year here now, um, and I would say so in your last year of a business. PhD program. If you're interested in going into academia, you kind of go on the market. And so essentially you get the chance to sort of fly out interview at a variety of different schools. Um, and, you know, what really stood out to me about Darden was just how well-rounded um, they like our faculty to be. And so there's sort of three big things. It's, you know, being you know an, an excellent teacher in the classroom, a rigorous researcher, and then also influencing managerial practice. Um, And, you know, schools have different philosophies around that. Some schools specialize more on the research side. Some schools specialize more on the teaching side. Um, But Darden's philosophy about really sort of emphasizing all three of these was something that was really appealing to me. And it was something that sort of I aspired uh, to be in my career. And and ideally, I see these three things as being really mutually reinforcing. And so that was something that was um, really stood out to me. When I visited Darden, and that I thought would be a good fit for for my interests, um, and beyond that, just visiting, you know, I, I just got along really well with the people here. I just had such a good feeling being on grounds here. Um, I'd never been to Charlottesville before, um, and and I just could see myself um, really enjoying being a part of this community.
0: Well, it's so interesting to hear you tell your story because it it parallels what a lot of our prospective students, uh, particularly those looking at the full-time MBA program, the residential program in Charlottesville, the process they go through. Many Mm -hmm. have not been to Charlottesville before. They're coming, they're evaluating the community, they're thinking about culture. Um, Your point uh, about researching is interesting to me because one of the things I've heard from faculty and we've talked about here on, on office hours is how faculty you know, their research is really close to actual practitioners. They're focused on people who are who are doing the work out there. And, and that strikes me, at least according to the faculty that I've talked to, is maybe a little bit different than what you might see uh, from other business schools. Would, did that appeal to you?
1: Yeah. And, and I think a big thing is just people are so open-minded about research here and what research can look like. Um, and, and, you know, there are pros and cons of different models, but, you know, in some schools you find that you have a department where everybody is working on really, really similar topics. And, and that can be great because you, know, you can co-author with one another. You can sort of get really deep into the details um, with one another. But um, Darden is a place where I think faculty really have an opportunity to kind of develop their own sort of unique path forward. And, and that's kind of embraced here um, and even just down to you know how our offices are set up here, we we don't sit in departments; we're all mixed in together, and I, I think that kind of infuses a lot of what we do. And so you end up um, with people that that research topics that span a lot of boundaries, um, and that's something that I think one sort of sort of translates really well into the real world, and then two on the research side for me is is just so fun to to see all the different types of things that people are working on all the time.
0: Well, you teach. Uh... Strategy in the core curriculum, and you also teach an elective, which we're going to talk about: strategic corporate governance. And, and we're going to spend a fair amount of the conversation talking about corporate governance. But before we get there, uh, what's it like to teach strategy in the in the first year core curriculum?
1: Yeah, so the class that I teach um, is in the first year. All um, first year MBA students will take a core strategy class. Um, and so, for those that don't know, you know, Darton structures the first year. Within sections, And so you sort of come in, you have your section, you take all of your core classes with that group of people. Um, and so before even getting into the content of the class, um, it's really fun just to be a part of that core experience because you have, you have sections, they develop their own norms, their own cultures, um, and they really develop a, a kind of cool sense of camaraderie amongst one another. And they get to know each other really, really well. Um, and so, as a faculty member, one it's really fun just to be kind of a part of that um, component of the Darden experience, and two, just you know, getting to work with a group of students that are you know so familiar with one another that really sort of support one another both inside and outside the classroom, I think just infuses something really special into the classroom environment that just makes it you know so fun and rewarding to to get to be you know the faculty member to um, to work with students in, in that type of environment. In terms of the class itself, what I love about strategy is that we get to wrestle with these really, really big picture questions. And oftentimes they're questions that have really no clear answer. And so with any type of um strategic decision, oftentimes there are you know multiple paths forward. There is always some degree of sort of uncertainty and risk taking. You're usually balancing, you know, all different types of information that's sometimes conflicting, uh, but we're kind of charting a path forward um, all together as a group. And so I really like that, you know, strategy is a class that can, you know, draw upon some of your sort of creative energy, thinking about different paths forward, but also just sort of allows us to to wrestle about these these huge questions in a way that I find um, really, really fun because you never know exactly how these discussions are going to play out exactly, and um, we have a great set of cases too that that allow us to to do that all together.
0: I noticed that we're getting some questions in the Q&A, and I will just say to our attendees, we'll keep an eye on the Q&A as as we go along. We've got some questions here that we're going to work through, but we always like to hear from you, so uh, we'll keep an eye on the Q&A, and I want to talk a little bit more about the the case method. Um, So this is something that prospective students, they hear about, and I, I sometimes wonder when we say it, like, maybe people are a little bit nervous to ask, like, what exactly is that or how does it work? Um, Because sometimes business school works this way where everybody's saying things and you're like, oh, should I know what that is? And so how do you explain the the case method to people?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, I think at its core, the case method um, is just a very student-centered learning model. and so it really relies on buy-in from everyone to sort of do the preparation before class, to be engaged in class, and to contribute. And that that comes from all sides, uh, both from the student side and the faculty side. Um, but in terms of the actual kind of nuts and bolts of how it works here at Darden, um, for most classes, there's going to be a case study that you have in advance that's you know, anywhere from seven to, you know, sometimes 25 pages. We always get some complaints about some of those long ones um, that really lays out a major decision or dilemma that, you know, a specific person or a team is working through. And it kind of puts you in the shoes of that person. It gives you some background information. Um, it gives you some data, oftentimes in the form of exhibits. And then there is sort of a question posed through this case study that, you um, over the course of a class session, we're going to work through together. Um, So what I really like about it is that it relies on so many different levels of um, collaboration. So there's the part that you do on your own where you're reading the case, you're thinking about these issues um, independently. And then at Darden um, in the first year, everyone has a learning team. And so this is like an intermediate step where you're meeting with four to five other people preparing for class, you know, helping each other work through, you know, some of the questions you might have. And then we come all together as a section, and that's, you know, 65 to 70 people to really work through um, the issues of the case all together as a big group. So it sort of scales as you as you come together. Um, and, you know, it's a really experiential type of learning model. And I think sort of being forced to sort of put yourselves in the shoes of the protagonist for the case um, really sort of helps you build sort of a, a level of engagement that's tough to reach when you know it's someone just lecturing to you, or if it's you just reading a book on your own. This is something that really sort of you know people get invested in these in these discussions, and I think um, one. It, it's a really exciting way to work through a specific problem, but two, it just sort of um, opens your mind up to you know where else you might see these types of themes or theories or issues come up, and and you'll remember that experience in the classroom, and and you sort of have the the background to be able to extrapolate out um, to to think about how you would you know address these types of issues um, in a in a whole other context that you might face in the future. So that's. I'm pretty, I, I don't know that exactly um, will help clarify some of um, some of the questions there, but those are a few things that I like about the case method and, and you know, how I see it unfolding here at Darton.
0: Well, it's interesting to hear about how faculty prepare for those conversations, because I imagine some of these cases you've taught more than once, and, you know, you would be you see, if the uh, cases change, I assume from year to year, the faculty mm-hmm. make choice. How do you determine what cases you're teaching, and then how do you get ready for those case discussions?
1: Yeah, so with the with the first year curriculum, we're we're really structured. So as I said, we have you know five different sections of of students in that first year, and every single day, each section is going through the same cases, even though they're in different classrooms, oftentimes with different faculty members, um, and so. For strategy, we have a a um, course head, And so that's the person that's setting the syllabus across all five sections, so we know you know every single day, you know everybody in that first year in Darden is going to be discussing the same case and strategy. And by the time we reach the end of um, the end of the year, everyone's leaving with the same um, sort of core set of experiences and the core um, sort of background knowledge as you go into the second year. Uh, with my elective, I, I have a little bit more uh, freedom to sort of, you know, choose how I want to set the syllabus. And, and so that's a class we'll talk about that later, I imagine. Um, but that's um, an area where where I personally get to kind of pick and choose what we want to do. Um, but for in terms of preparation, um I think we kind of mirror what, what students do. And so we have a teaching team with strategy. There's five of us that teach the five sections of strategy. And so every week we get together and we discuss the next two cases that we'll be teaching that week. And it and we we go in depth. I mean, it starts from you know the learning objectives to the specific discussion pastures um, that we want to hit on. Um, it even gets to you know what we want our boards to look like at the end of the session. We really strive to sort of make sure we're offering kind of a consistent set of um, sort of learnings and takeaways. But of course, we all have our own you know individual styles about how we get there, um, and so we we kind of do that all as a group. Of course, I'm also you know individually reviewing. The materials, no matter how many times I've I've taught them, I'm going to go look at the case again, look at the technical note, or anything else that's assigned to students. Um, And then I like to think about my section itself. So, are there students there that have, you know, particularly relevant expertise that I want to make sure to draw upon? Are there, you know, students that have been a little bit more quiet lately that I want to make sure we have? A chance to hear from, um, thinking about how I can tailor things for my individual um, set of students, and then sort of envisioning the different you know ways in which the discussion might evolve. But you know, after doing all of this in-depth planning, I, I think the key is really you know like being able to let that go by the time I walk into the classroom. So I know exactly all the different pieces we want to hit on, um, but because it's a case discussion. Sort of by the time I walk in, I want to be flexible enough to kind of let those pieces fall in whatever order they're going to come in and sort of making sure we can piece them together, but um being, you know, prepared to the extent that I can kind of let go of the plan and let things just kind of flow organically, see um, see how things develop once we're we're all in there together. And you know, what's fun about the case method is that you know it's it's inherently. Unpredictable, and so we're there to facil- facilitate and to kind of bring people, um, sort of down down a path together. But the, you know, there's always something new that that I'll hear or learn um, anytime I teach a case, even if I've taught it a whole bunch of times before.
0: Got a question in the Q and A about like, I guess when something happens in the news and it aligns with like what you're learning about in class. Do you mm-hmm. make time for those discussions, like how does that get woven into what you're discussing? Because I mean, strategy companies are making strategic decisions all the time, all the all the time.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's one of the really fun things too about um, about strategy. Also, with our teaching team, we're constantly emailing each other. Like throughout the year, even when we aren't teaching, it's like, oh man, did you see this news about Nintendo, which is you know one of the cases we teach, um, and it sort of perfectly aligns with something we discuss in class. So we're always uh, amongst the faculty, and, and oftentimes from our students as well, keeping up to date with what's going on. Um, with respect to the actual case discussion, um, I really like to strive to kind of keep us in the moment of 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 the case, and sometimes that's sort of bringing us a little bit into the past. Um, and, and, you know, maybe they're thinking about a decision where people actually know what ended up happening. Uh, but with strategy, like we, we don't, that's not necessarily the answer, right? There are probably other paths they could have taken, maybe something that could have worked even better. We, we, we just don't know. And part of the fun of the discussion is sort of imagining you're there at a certain point in time, um, and, and sort of debating what's going on uh, in that moment. But oftentimes at at the tail end of class, we'll have a little debrief about, you know, what's going on with with the company now. Um, We also kind of have a tradition of of sending out follow-ups after class. And and oftentimes that's that's a chance to sort of pull in uh, recent headlines. And oftentimes students will send those along too. Um, So uh, we definitely strive to bring in what's going on right now, but for the purposes of the sort of Case discussion itself. Um, we try to really focus in on kind of the particular moment um, in which we're sort of making a decision. We're we're sort of charting a path forward.
0: Do you have a favorite case that you like to teach, or you just think is so much fun to do with students?
1: Um, I mean. It always changes. I mean, sometimes like a a discussion will just go particularly well and I I walk out of class and I'm like, "Oh, that's my new favorite case." <laughs> um so so it always changes. There's I'll say right now, there's um one that that I'll I'll mention. Um now it's one of the first cases we discuss in strategy and it's about Red Hook, which is a microbrewery. And essentially We kind of start out the discussion talking about big kind of environmental trends. Um, We're talking about um, economic trends, demographic trends, sociocultural trends, and how all of these things are sort of indicating that we're going to see massive growth in the microbrewing industry and how this is you know a great place to to start a new company people get excited and they're like oh yeah this is like you know um all signs point towards this being you know a great path forward for for Red Hook which is a brewery that was founded by a and alum uh, but then we sort of flip things and then we start sort of using a different framework to look at the fundamentals of the industry and what we find there is that there are a lot of sort of industry level structural factors that put a lot of downward pressure on profit potential. And so even though we're seeing growth in microbreweries on the whole, um, for any individual company, it's actually really, really challenging um, to, to sort of achieve profitability, just given these major industry trends. And so what ends up happening is that this is a case where a lot of people end up changing their mind. They kind of walk in, they're like, oh, this is a great uh, industry to be in. But by the time they walk out and they're like, oh wait, no, actually this, you know, maybe it's better to be um, Miller. Maybe it's better to be Anheuser-Busch. Um, and, and I think this is a case where one, it's fun to see people sort of change their perspective in the course of our discussion. But two, I think it really highlights um, one of the challenges of of strategic analysis is that you're going to be weighing different types of information that's oftentimes conflicting and it's up to you to try to um, figure out, you know, what information to use, how do you integrate it, how do you use that to inform your your decisions um, in the face of of a lot of uncertainty. And so I think that case really nicely highlights um, some of the, the kind of underlying themes that come through the rest of the strategy course. So for now, I'll say that one's a favorite, but it always changes.
0: <laughs> well, I mentioned we were gonna be talking about corporate governance, which is one of your areas of expertise. And we're gonna talk about your elective as well. Um, but before we kind of get into all the conversation about corporate governance, I thought it'd be nice just to start with, well, what is corporate governance? How do you explain this uh, to people who are not as familiar with the topic?
1: Yeah, yeah. so. In addition to the strategy course, I, I teach a class on corporate governance. Um I think on the most fundamental level, corporate governance is kind of the system of guardrails and processes that make sure um, that kind of guide the overall direction of a firm. and And that's really abstract in terms of, you know, how I see corporate governance in practice, just given that, I'm a researcher in a business school. Um, the board of directors is really sort of the nexus of where a lot of the sort of corporate governance questions that I'm interested in um, come to play. And so if you think about a typical organization, you have you know employees, middle managers, executives, and then the CEO. And then in a public company, or, or in, in any company really, you have a board of directors that sits above that entire sort of pyramid there. Um, in a public company, the board is elected by shareholders to essentially um, act on their behalf and make sure that management is managing the organization um, in their best interests. And so if you think about the CEO in a typical company, and you're like, okay, they're at the very, very top of this hierarchy, You know, who's their boss? Um, it's the board. The board is the group that sets their compensation, that hires them, that has the power to fire them. Um, And they're really sort of there to oversee the overall direction of an organization. They aren't there to run things day to day. They aren't there making the kind of small tactical decisions. They're there sort of looking at the overall sort of big picture for an organization. And so for me, corporate governance is a lot about, you know, what is that board of directors doing? You know, what are their responsibilities? How well are they executing on on sort of... um, what they need to do to make sure that an organization is run effectively for the long term so for me corporate governance uh, in practice is a lot about you know the activities of, of a board of directors that oversees an, an entire organization
0: how did you get interested in this in this topic
1: yeah it was uh, very roundabouts kind of similar to how i ended up in a strategy program i mean i Prior to applying to grad school, I can't say I would be able to say what corporate governance is um, in any type of um, knowledgeable fashion. But I would say kind of entering grad school, I was always really fascinated by this idea of how individuals within a firm can kind of really shape the trajectory of an organization and how, you know, you can have you know, a, a huge organization, but then, you know, you have certain people that just hold so much influence over the direction that they're the sort of decisions that they make have just extraordinary implications for uh, both people within the organization and outside. And that was just always something that, you know, was really fascinating to me. And so kind of as I went through grad school, what happens is that you kind of take two classes or two years of, of classes. And then the third year, you're just suddenly all on your own. And essentially you're tasked with kind of finding your own research identity and figuring out what you're going to write for your dissertation. And really, you know, if I had disappeared for months, I don't know if anyone would have, would have realized it because they they really just kind of let you set you free to figure out what you want to study. And so I was just, you know, reading a lot of books, reading a lot of papers, looking at the news um, and this idea of CEO transitions um, became something that kind of really highlighted this idea of like, okay, you know, there are certain people that can have a major effect on the direction of an organization. Oftentimes, that's the CEO. Um, and then you have these transitions that so often don't seem to be um, managed very effectively, even in these major corporations where you would expect that they have. You know great processes in place. They have talented people there to you know help run the organization. But I just kept seeing time and time again um, in the news of of these CEO transitions that just didn't go very smoothly. And so as I tried to dig into why, I realized like, oh, it's it's the board of directors that makes these decisions. And then I was like, okay, so who is the board? What do they do? And that that really kind of opened my eyes to the world of. Of corporate governance and all the sort of fascinating questions that that arise at, at that level of decision making, um, and and so that um, was kind of the area that that I latched onto that third year of grad school, um, really started to dig in there, and and that's sort of the area that I've been sort of actively um, building in terms of my own research and and now teaching here at Darden.
0: It's such an interesting point that you make about CEO transitions and just thinking about CEOs generally in the board and the relationship between the two, because, I mean, would you, would you say we're living in an era, era of celebrity CEOs? You think about some of these CEOs and their company, it's like almost this is a one-to-one relationship here, but you don't really know the board uh, that well, or at least I don't. Um, why, why is that, do you think?
1: Yeah, I, and I think that's one of the fascinating things is that, you know, the board is oftentimes just kind of behind the scenes. And so until you really start looking into it, um, you don't always know exactly, like, what are they doing? And, and you, it's hard to um, kind of recognize how much influence they might have. But um, in the system that we have, in um, especially in sort of public companies in the U.S., it's, you know, Because of social media, because of the tools that, you know, CEOs have at their disposal, we're finding that many leaders of companies have much more of an external sort of uh, facing persona, much more than they have in the past, just because they have so many different channels in which they can communicate with people outside of their organizations Um, and, and really, really quickly too and, and sort of individually it's not something that's necessarily going through a big PR team or a communications team, you know, now CEOs just you know at their fingertips for better or for worse can you know directly communicate with with anybody outside the organization. Um, uh, and at the same time, I think, uh, stakeholders are also expecting to hear more from, from our leaders, expecting to see leaders weigh in on social and political issues that, you know, maybe are outside of the sort of direct scope of, of their organizations. And so I think these two things together are really creating a situation where we see so many companies that are really, you know, their identities are so tightly interlinked with their CEOs, um. But for me, I think it's always important to, to remember like, OK, there's also this board behind the scenes and, and what's going on there that's sort of um, enabling or constraining what the CEO is is doing.
0: One of the things that struck me as we were having our planning call and we were talking about some of the things that you've written about, which we're going to talk about here, is that some of these headline stories about we were Spotify, we're gonna talk about Twitter here. Like you can look at them in a lot of different ways, but invariably there's a corporate governance angle to it. And, and I was wondering, um, when you are doing your research, are you more oftentimes looking at examples of bad corporate govern- governance or really like this is a company doing this exceptionally well? Where where do you think there's more opportunity for you in, in your research?
1: Yeah, so one of the interesting dynamics that that emerges is that you know, in the ordinary course of business, you don't hear that much publicly about what a board is doing. You know, they're taking minutes during their meetings, but these minutes are not made public. Um, You don't have, you know, press conferences after board meetings where people are coming out and and discussing, you know, the specific decisions that were made because oftentimes these are internal discussions that, you know, have, where, you know, really sensitive business issues are, are discussed. And so typically you just don't hear very much about, what the board is doing, what are they discussing, um, and and in general, if if they're doing a good job as serving as the kind of checks and balances, then then usually you know it, it's almost a good thing to be like okay, like things are under control. We don't need to know exactly what's going on day to day at the board level, and and it's really when these sort of dramatic, you know, governance breakdowns occur, and the, those are the situations where you you really start to get an inside look at at what's what's been going on. Sometimes that's because of, you know, legal litigation. Sometimes that's because of, you know, a company's decision that they need to sort of communicate more transparently to sort of build trust with external stakeholders and and investors. Um, And so oftentimes when you look at the news, when you read books about governance, um, a lot of the research studies you see um, are built upon these these major breakdowns of of situations where you see bad governance. Um, And There's plenty you can learn from those situations and and a lot of these um, types of events really help us um, think about how governance can be improved moving forward. Um, But in my research I I have been trying to, you know, make sure we can kind of see the other side of the picture and so I use a lot of different types of research methods uh, with the work that I do. And so, you know, conducting interviews, using surveys, things like that um, are all sort of tools that that I've been sort of employing to, to try to see, you know, what's happening in the normal day-to-day course of, of a board meeting, you know, what are like the signs of, of what's going on when things are are going well and trying to make sure we're seeing both sides of the kind of good and bad governance um, events.
0: Well, let's talk about your strategic corporate governance elective. So tell us more about this class.
1: Yeah, so this is an elective that I teach uh, for second year students. So after students go through three quarters of the core curriculum at Darden, they then have their fourth quarter as a first year and then four quarters as a second year to kind of pick and choose exactly uh, what they want to take. And so this um, is a class that I offer in the second year. And it's all about boards of directors. And essentially, the first part of the course is about the different responsibilities of boards. And so it's things like um, how do you determine what capabilities you need? How do you build the right um, culture and dynamics within your board? How do you approach setting CEO compensation? How do you hire and fire a CEO? Um, That's the first part of the course. And then the second part of the course is sort of integrating across all of that to discuss, you know, major strategic issues that boards are involved in, and so that could be, you know, bringing a company public. That could be, you know, navigating a merger or acquisition situation. It could be engaging with an activist investor. Um, it's sort of uh, thinking about these sort of major strategies or big picture questions that that boards are involved in and the kind of different dynamics at play. And that's what we discuss in the second part of the course. So that's kind of how I've designed it.
0: Why do you think this class is important for MBA students?
1: Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that I I find really fun about teaching corporate governance um, for second year students is that a lot of people come in with with a very limited knowledge about corporate governance, which is which is what I expect. And so, on that first day of class, I, I give them a survey. I ask them about you know all different types of corporate governance issues and their views on them. So, like things like you know should a CEO um, weigh in on social and political issues? Do you think that the level of CEO pay in the U.S. is is too high? Um, a lot of these debates around corporate governance. But I also have a question in there that asks, you know, like, how much do you know about corporate governance? Um, and essentially, usually we're starting at a, at a pretty low baseline, which um, which I think is really fun. And so just bringing people in uh, who don't have any type of, um, you know, oftentimes no direct background in corporate governance, this isn't something that they've you know, thought about necessarily. Um, but as we go through the course, um, these sort of light bulbs go off where people realize like, oh, wait, like all of these different things that they've seen in other courses, you know, have a governance component to them. All of these different, you know, things that they see in the news actually have, you know, a governance element. And This is a course that's really, really multidisciplinary. It builds, uh, you know, as a strategy professor, oftentimes I I focus on the strategy angle, but um, you know, corporate governance builds on on finance, on accounting, on ethics, on leadership, all these different things that they've been looking at um, somewhat separately over the course of their first year through their core classes are all sort of coming together to be integrated um, in the questions that we're discussing in corporate governance. And so what I love is just the opportunity to kind of introduce um, a field that I find absolutely fascinating um, to to a new section of students each time I teach it. And then by the end of the quarter, I, I have another survey. Um, we always, when I ask again, like, how much do you know about corporate governance? Uh, we've all moved... Um, significantly over to the right in that distribution. Um, but also just, just moving forward, I, I think one of the most um, fun things is that I'm always getting you know, emails from students, um, even after they've left Darden. They say like, oh, like I just did this at work and this was just like what we did in class or, you know, I saw this news article um, and, and it reminded me of of the discussions that we had and, and really um, just sort of, uh, what I love about the class is that it helps people see you know, the importance of governance and just how it's, it's absolutely everywhere. And that's something that people um, oftentimes don't recognize before um, we all come together, of course. Well.
0: That's a good transition to kind of the next questions. I see we're also getting some uh, questions in the Q&A, and and we'll touch on on some of those as well. Uh, But I want to transition and talk a little bit about some of your ideas to action articles. Mm -hmm. And one of those is about WeWork, and you actually wrote a case uh, about WeWork. Do you want to talk a little bit more uh, about this case and how you got interested in this particular, um, I guess, topic, uh, for lack of a better word?
1: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm always on the lookout for interesting new cases. Um, as we kind of talked about earlier with the elective, it, it's kind of up to me to decide how I want to design the syllabus. A lot of the cases that we discuss are, are ones that that I've written kind of specifically tailored for the course. And so I'm always looking for interesting um, new topics. And so with WeWork, this was one where I just became obsessed with what was going on. There were, you know, thousands of articles about the kind of botched IPO process with WeWork. And I, I probably read like 95% of those articles. <laughs> um, but what what was fascinating there was that, you know, a lot of the focus initially was on the CEO, Adam Newman, some of his kind of personality quirks, you know, strange things about how, you know, he was choosing to lead the company. Uh, but then you also started to get a bunch of, articles around, you know, what was wrong with their governance system. And that was also fascinating to me, looking at like, okay, they chose to implement these certain practices that are, you know, really out of the norm from what you see um, in other companies in the same industry or other companies that are approaching an IPO. Um, But the kind of more I looked at it, the more I was interested in, in why this happened In the first place, you know, we had a board of directors that was filled with very, very experienced investors and venture capitalists that had successfully brought other companies public. Uh, Presumably, they, you know, had experience sort of evolving and and sort of developing a corporate governance system that would be appropriate for um, a company that's that's approaching an IPO. And in this case, it, it just really didn't happen. And so what I wanted to focus on in the case study was not just. You know, what went wrong, but why this happened and, and really getting into the incentives of the people in the boardroom, the culture that was at play, the kind of power balance and imbalance between Adam Newman, the CEO, and the other board directors, um, and really kind of have a chance to discuss within the class You know, how do these incentives change as a company approaches an IPO? You know, what are the things that a board can do proactively to try to avoid a situation like this and really digging into the why of, of, you know, what happened here and and ideally sort of getting to a place um, more broadly to get people to think about, you know, what can be done to avoid a situation like this in the future,
0: yeah, it's one of those I think it's a company we've heard a lot about. You know, they were in the news a lot. I'm amazed that you read that, but maybe ninety five percent of those maybe articles, not, but like, I feel like... <laughs> There was a lot to read. Uh, and you know another another company that you wrote an article about you and Jared Harris, the member of the strategy another member of the the strategy faculty, have a conversation about Spotify. And I'll mm-hmm. say you know, Spotify user here. um and I had not thought about the Joe Rogan scandal and all of that as a corporate governance um issue i thought about it it's just like well well spotify has gotten themselves in a difficult situation when they have given a hundred million dollars to this podcast person's controversial and yet when i read that conversation on ideas to action you and jared mc clear that like, this is a strategy decision and strategy comes, you know, out of this corporate governance world. I, I found that so fascinating. You want to tell us a little bit more about how you got interested in that particular company and that issue?
1: Yeah. So I, I think it really kind of highlights the the role of an effective board and, and what they can do. And so when you think about, you know, a CEO, their you know, chief strategy officer, the teams internally, you know, oftentimes they're making you know, decisions around the overall direction for an organization where they want to invest. And then sort of from there, they're making all of these sort of individual decisions to try to execute on that strategy and to try to bring themselves forward. And and oftentimes, you know, you have different teams making different decisions, maybe somewhat separately, and and you end up sort of everyone sort of driving towards the same goal, but you're sort of making these individual decisions um, in a somewhat disparate fashion. and, And they just kind of keep rolling if if you're sort of in the company day-to-day making these operational decisions. Uh, But what's unique about the board is that they're there to sort of look out for the organization on the whole. And so really it's sort of incumbent on them to kind of back up and be like, okay, you know, if these are the decisions that we're making about the strategic direction for the firm and these are kind of the tactical decisions that are getting us there, you know, what are the bigger picture risks and implications of these types of moves and you know sometimes it takes being somewhat separated from the day to day to be able to see that and and that is you know what the board is and so what that highlighted what the spotify situation highlighted to me is that you know when you have a board that has the right you know processes in place to sort of get the information they need to see what's going on within an organization but also have the right um sort of culture in place to be able to be a little bit skeptical, to be able to ask the right questions about, you know, what are the implications of of a direction for an organization? Um, when you have that in place, that, that's a situation that can help an organization sort of get on the right track before ending up in um, kind of an unintended place where there's sort of blowback or some type of reputational risk that ends up kind of imploding down the line. Um, An effective board would be able to kind of stop you before getting down to that point um, if they have the right practices in place.
0: Well, let's talk about probably one of the more notable uh, board-related meltdowns from the past uh, few years. Uh, I'm looking at uh, you hear on the Zoom screen over your shoulder. There's a copy of Bad Blood uh, <laughs> right there. And so Theranos, the Elizabeth Holmes uh, health technology company, a lot of hay was made about the board for this company, and just mm-hmm. these you know inc- incredible people, very accomplished. And I was, I was struck by sort of your your take on on that story. You want to tell us just a little bit more about how you got interested in in uh, with Theranos and everything that happened with that company.
1: Yeah so so I imagine many people have heard about the huge rise and and fall of, of Theranos. Uh, what really intrigued me about the situation there is that you know if you go back you know 30 or 40 years ago people always laugh about how you know people didn't take corporate governance very seriously the board was and, and oftentimes people would say the board is this Christmas tree, and individual directors are, are ornaments that are just meant to be, you know, shiny objects that people externally will see and be like, oh look, you know, this this you know board seems to have you know the right shiny pieces, and and that's kind of all that was expected from from board directors. But since then, you know, the general consensus is that you know, boards have developed to be much more uh, proactive, we expect much more from our governance systems. Um, but this was a situation where that exact same sort of dynamic just, just came back out, people looked at the board of Theranos, they saw a group of people that were, you know, luminaries from the government and military world. um and, and somehow people saw that and they're like, oh, wow, look at how well this organization is governed. Like, look at the you know, resumes of the people on this board. This must be, you know, everything must be going great here because people were just so kind of dazzled by um, the the sort of credentials of, of who is sitting on this board. Uh, but then when you sort of go back and look, you're like, OK, this is, you know, a biotech company that's relying on, you know, Chemical engineering technology and and not a single person on this board has relevant experience or expertise in in those areas. Um, and so I, I think what's fascinating about what happened there is that you know when things were going well, when you know investors were excited about the company, people saw this board, and there were literal articles about you know how well this organization was governed. um and people were kind of blinded to, the kind of um, realities of, of what was going on until till afterward when they went and looked and were like, okay, wait, this this board doesn't actually make any sense at all um, in terms of the capabilities of the people in the room in terms of how these board members were, um, were recruited. And so what I thought was interesting there was just, you know, like I thought this was an issue that we had kind of moved past already. I thought we had gotten to a point where we were, you know, a little bit more um, sort of structured in terms of, how we think about what a board should look like and, and turns out the, the exact same thing just kind of happened again, where people are like, oh, wow, look at this beautiful corporate Christmas tree. Things must be fine without really digging into the next layer of, you know, are these the right people to be governing a company like this?
0: Well, your point around board composition is is interesting because I have a couple, of, a couple of questions related to it. So, um, how does a board come together? Like, how do you decide who's going to be on your board? And there's been so many conversations about board composition, particularly from a representational aspect, you know, diversification of boards, more women on boards, more minorities on boards. These have historically been, you know, very white, very, very male um, environments. And so, but I've also heard you say, as in, your, in your remarks here, that culture matters a lot. So, like, how does a board come together Does a company? Think about that. And how do they get that right culture? place.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So something that's interesting about boards that oftentimes people don't directly recognize is that, generally speaking, in the kind of ordinary course of business, um, boards get to nominate their own directors. So it's the board themselves that are deciding who's going to sit on the board. Um, In a public company, shareholders get to vote on the board of directors, but generally they're voting to approve a set of people that were nominated. By the board itself, and so that raises a whole host of, of questions around, you know, our board members, you know, thinking carefully enough about what types of capabilities are needed um, on on the kind of most basic level, starting with. Um, so, oftentimes, you know a struggle that boards have is that they aren't necessarily forward-looking enough in the types of capabilities that that they're looking for. Um, So, you know, oftentimes it's easy to make sure you have someone with finance expertise or audit expertise, someone with, um, you know, experience in the industry, but, you know, if the industry is evolving into, you know, different types of business models, um, a board really needs to be proactive to make sure like, okay, we're recruiting the right people that are able to kind of bridge this industry transition or cybersecurity expertise now is crucial for essentially any type of company out there and making sure you have somebody who's fluent in cybersecurity issues at the board level. Um, Making sure you're thinking about those types of issues is is really, really critical. Making sure you have people with the right types of expertise. Um, On the diversity piece, um, once again, just because of how these processes Work. It's a board going out to sort of develop their own slate of uh, potential new directors. Uh, what unfortunately happens is that, you know, if you have a group of white men, they're oftentimes more likely to be connected to other white men. Those are the people that they know and their professional networks and their social networks. Um, and what you oftentimes see is, is sort of just this sort of self-perpetuating System where if those are the people that are choosing who's going to sit on the board, you're not going to see um, necessarily much of an expansion in in the types of people that are brought onto boards if a company isn't you know thinking proactively about you know the value of of having different perspectives in the room, um, and so for a board just given that they need to oversee these major major. Sort of big picture questions, it, it's really crucial to be able to have a broad set of perspectives there. Um, and one thing I always like to think about is, you know, like, what's the purpose of, of getting a board together, right? So if you think about a situation where you have a bunch of board directors that, you know, they went to school together, they, you know, go on vacation together, they're, you know, people that have known each other for years and years and years, they walk into the board meeting, you know, someone says something and everyone's like, oh yeah, couldn't have said it better. Totally agree. You know, this is exactly what I was thinking. And you walk out and you're like, man, what a great meeting. Like you said exactly what I was thinking. And and people can feel great about that and be like, oh wow, what a great board meeting. But you know, if you're walking in there and then walking back out with the same exact perspective, you know, in my view, like, you know, what was the point of getting everyone together in the first place, like there was no reason to put everyone in that room together if we're all just going to agree with one another. Um, On the flip side, you can imagine a much more diverse board, people that are coming in with different types of expertise, different types of experiences from different demographic backgrounds. You go in, people are pushing one another, they're sort of discussing things from different angles, they're asking questions to sort of check each other's assumptions and you're sort of walking in there, it can be you know, difficult to have those types of discussions. But then when you walk back out, you know, people are seeing these issues slightly differently from how they did when they walked in. And that's really the point of, of getting people together. I think at, at their best, like board meetings should be challenging and, and people should be asking difficult questions and people should be walking out with um, a different perspective than what they had when they first went in. And, and that's you know, really difficult to to have something like that if you don't have sufficient diversity on your board. Um, and so I, I think that's a critical piece of thinking about how to build the right board. Um, but, and if going go into the culture piece, I kind of see both as being critical. You need, so the people with the right capabilities, but you also need the right culture. So, you know, you can have the most brilliant, wonderful people in the room, but if you don't have a culture that allows people to kind of share their, expertise or to effectively, you know, work with one another, you know, you aren't going to be able to reap the benefits of having those people in the room. And so kind of both pieces are really, really critical in my view for um, good and effective corporate governance.
0: Well, you you've shared so much already, but I feel like it's been a week of really quite a bit of business news. And we questioned in the Q&A earlier about, well, Twitter, which has been in the, yeah. the news quite a bit. And um, it feels like every day there's a new thing coming out. And when you look at all those stories, um, it, do you think about it from a corporate governance angle? Is there is there something that jumps out to you from a, from a governance standpoint?
1: Yeah, I mean, Twitter, like Twitter, Elon Musk just offers endless fodder for discussion. I mean, I've been teaching my corporate governance elective uh, for the past four years and, and obviously, you know this Twitter situation wasn't um, on the radar, you know, in 2019. But there's always something going on with Elon Musk that that we can discuss in class. And so, uh, for me, you know, there's almost always a governance angle to anything he does there. Um, but I think what's kind of interesting about Elon Musk and and right now with Twitter is that you know oftentimes with with you know with WeWork with Theranos we were seeing you know, governance breakdowns in a way where we were seeing themes that were consistent with, you know, things that we've seen happen in other companies. And so the question there is like, okay, why is this happening again? You know, what what went wrong? Why did it go wrong? But it's sort of in a way that we've seen things unfold before. Uh, with Elon Musk, it's, you know, he makes a certain move. And then you're know, like, okay, based on how other, you know, other events have have unfolded, I would guess that X, Y, or Z would happen, but because it's Elon Musk, it's something completely different. And so you kind of need to throw out the playbook of like, okay, if X happens, then Y is likely to follow. Um, There's just this level of unpredictability and and just, you know, the way he, um, the decisions that he makes, you know, differ so strongly from what we oftentimes see in other settings that, it, it's nearly impossible um, for me anyway to predict what he might do. Um, and so what's interesting there is just every time something happens is it, thinking about like, okay, what might be the implications of him making this decision? And it's an interesting thought experiment because oftentimes it's something that we haven't seen before. <laughs> and it's sort of unfolding in a way with um. It, it's it's unfolding in a, in a way that that's completely unique, and so the governance questions there are sort of like, all right, now that this has happened, I didn't know this was going to happen, but what like you know what might be the implications on on the governance side, and and it's constantly evolving. Um, but anytime I see a news article about Twitter these days, there there's always I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, so you know what would this mean for the governance system in place.
0: So we've talked a lot about these kind of celebrity CEOs or celebrity founders, the, the person they became outside personalities or you knew you knew the person um, as yeah, almost again before you even knew anything about the company, like you you had met the person too. Can a board stand up to that kind of person? You know, where it's like this person found the company founded the company, or they're they're a huge personality that comes with all that baggage to the acquisition of the company. Do you think a board can can stand up to them?
1: I do. I definitely think a board can can stand up to sort of a larger than life founder or CEO. Um, but but it's not easy <laughs> for sure. Um, and especially just given that, you know, oftentimes, you know, early on in a company, board members are investors and and typically, you know, early on in a company's um development and life cycle, you know, they don't have a clear strategy yet, they don't necessarily have a clear product. Um, And and investors are really investing in the person in the founder and their vision. And so when you start at, at that place, you kind of end up with a balance of power where, you know, investors and board members are giving a lot of free reign to, to a founder to kind of make the decisions that they want to to make and really kind of giving a lot of discretion to founders. Um, but as a company develops, I think, you know, as we've seen with cases where, you know, somebody just has so much um, discretion and, and power unchecked, this really is, is not a good thing for the kind of long-term um, sustainability for a company. And so boards, I uh, it, it's certainly in their best interest to recognize as a company evolves, you know, putting in some of these guardrails, putting in some of these processes in place to make sure that, you know, it's more than just one person making these major decisions that have so many, you know, wide ranging and long term implications. Um, making sure they have the right team in place, making sure the, you know, the board has access to the right information to be able to both monitor and kind of collaborate with the management team is is definitely in a company's best long-term interest and, and for that reason you know board members that recognize this um, should be able to kind of build the systems that are needed to to create a a better balance between um, the the board and management and um, the decisions that are that are made there
0: well, Yo know, Jed, we covered a lot of ground today, and, Natalie, I'm sure some of our attendees have gotten interested in this particular topic. Maybe like the students in your strategic corporate governance class, they showed up, maybe didn't know a ton about corporate <laughs> governance. They know more now. Um, any books you would recommend? You know, what are what are two or three books for people who are interested in further exploring this topic?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, as you mentioned, on my bookshelf behind me, Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, all about um, the situation at Theranos. The author is the Wall Street Journal journalist that wrote that initial set of articles that really started to kind of poke holes in, in this sort of beautiful you know, external image that Theranos had had cultivated. Um, and, you know, really fascinating insights into Kind of the governance system there and what was going on behind the scenes um, the one thing i'll say is, is don't start reading it on a weekday because you're going to be up until 3 a.m because you won't be able to put it down and then you know you're gonna be really tired at work the next day So, bad blood by john Roo. rue um, on the the good governance side of things i would love to recommend um, ride of a lifetime it's the autobiography memoir by the former ceo of disney bob Iger. Um, and so he stepped down in 2020 after a really successful tenure as the um, head of, of Disney. And what I love about his memoir is that he really goes into his decision-making process around these big, major strategic calls that he had to make over the course of his career. And he also talks a lot about how he thought about, you know, collaborating and working with with his board and how he convinced them to sort of buy into his vision, you know, the times when they were really pushing back um, and sort of were skeptical about what he was doing and and how he thought about that um, relationship with his board and some of those internal discussions. Um, That's a fantastic one that that I really enjoy. And, and, you know, it has a happy ending. This is a a positive governance story for that one. Um, The third book I'll recommend, much more of an academic book. It's called um, Searching for a Corporate Savior. It's by Rakesh Karana, who's a professor at at Harvard. Um, And it's based on his research, all about what you would call the the market for CEOs. And so it's about how CEOs are selected, particularly when a company is looking outside the firm. Um, And it's all about, you know, the different barriers in place and the different sort of incentives at play that really make it challenging for a board to sort of effectively vet somebody um, and the types of biases that come into play when you're looking for, for a kind of corporate savior to come into your organization, particularly uh, when you're undergoing kind of challenging circumstances. Um, that was one that I read in grad school. I checked it out from the library thinking I was just going to, you know, I'll read the introduction, I'll read the conclusion, um, but I got totally pulled in. It was a fantastic um, book that that really gives you insight into what's going on at the board level when a CEO is, is selected. So those would be the three I would recommend.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Yojud, for joining. us for this office hours conversation, it's great to have you here, and and thank you to all our attendees and all the great questions. I mean, we're we're even getting book recommendations here in the in the Q and A. Somebody threw out the smartest guys in the room, the Enron uh, I just story. Read that it's also by I th- there. It
1: is. Yeah. And,
0: and I think there's even a Darden class where they read that uh, book together. It's a, it's an interesting one. Documentary is also also very interesting. If anybody's curious about about that story so um, as always we're going to share out the recording from this office hours conversation on our podcast experience darden and the exec mba podcast and we'll also have it up on the discover darden blog and we'd encourage you to join us on december 2nd we'll be back with another office hours installment uh, with professor pedro matos uh, who i think may be calling in from spain for that one so you'll have to join us to to see if that's if that's true but yo Jed, thank you so much for being here today and to everybody Uh, wherever you may be in the world, thank you for your time and uh, for your interest. And that was my conversation with yo Cheng, an assistant professor of business administration here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, We're All Ears, we can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Till next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.